0: Welcome to the Cashflow
1: Guys podcast. We are here again. It is that time. It is Friday morning. If you're paying attention, if you're up, if you're taking action, if you're getting motivated towards heading to your goal, it's that time of day. I need you to get up, get out of bed. Let's get to work. We need to get you some cash flow. If you're still punching that clock every day, you shouldn't be. By now, this is episode, I've lost track now, 82, 83, 85. Doesn't matter. We've been talking about this for quite a while. We did recently finished our back to basics uh, process in the show. And now we're going to step it up a notch. We're going to talk about growing your business exponentially. I've got with us today, you guys are going to love this. I've got Michael Blank. I've been listening to his show for quite a while now. I've been listening to Michael Blank. He is the host of the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. Michael, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, it's real great to be here.
1: I got to say, first of all, I love your show. Absolutely love your show. So thank you for putting out quality content, you know, doing what we do. And I was, I've been, I don't have as much experience, of course, as you do. So coming, watching you come up and learning basically as you're going through the different processes of raising capital and how to work through issues and situations, I got to say, I've applied a lot of what I've learned uh, or what I've done exactly from your show. I mean, just right off your, right off the cuff directly as you put it out, you can assure that I'm putting it putting it to use as is the rest of your listeners. So thank you for that starting out.
2: Well, no, thank you. Appreciate it. So, I want
1: to talk to you. You do mostly multifamily today. That's right. And now, I, I did read somewhere online that you did start with single family at one point.
2: I did, like everybody else. Every starts with single family.
1: So, everybody's got their reasons, Michael. I want to know from you why why multifamily for you.
2: Well, it's a it's a more of a convoluted answer because I literally tried everything under sun in my quest for financial freedom. I've done a software startup uh, that experienced an IPO and I thought I would parlay that IPO money into what I thought was my big idea to find that financial freedom, which was restaurants. So I did not think, uh, I did not think um, real estate, even though I started flipping houses, but my big financial freedom idea was restaurants. And it worked for about a good seven years. I was a state of of semi-retirement and traveled, and, you know, counted my money and flipped some houses. And it was nice, but it turns out the business model was fundamentally flawed and it really bit me in the, in the butt and I ended up losing 95% of my net worth through that experiment. I have had a short sale negotiation company, I flipped houses, I've held, I've been a landlord, I've done lease options, uh, and all, there was also multifamily in there, right? And so I threw experimentation on myself. And and, uh, and observing others, and now working with students, and observing them, and interviewing a bunch of other people on my podcast, I have come to the conclusion that multifamily is by far the number one way for people to come financially free, uh, with by any means whatsoever.
1: So. I, I'm going to ask because I, this conversation comes up a lot. I hear this a lot of people tell me, well, the the way to do it is stock market. The way to do it is strip malls. Uh, why specifically multifamily? What is it about that niche for you that makes a big
2: difference? Well, let's look, look at the alternatives you have, right? Stock market, obviously dividends, are they, unless you have several million dollars, aren't going to cover your living expenses. So you can, you can dismiss that right as a way for to basically quit your job. So that leaves, well, in the realm of real estate, leave single family houses. <clears throat> and obviously, and you and I both know this flipping houses is a great way to to create some chunky cash, but there's no there's nothing passive about it, right? If you're not buying, fixing, and and selling houses, you don't make money. And worse yet, once you sold it, there's no residual, there's no more income from that property, right? So, you know, after having done three, three dozen flips, I finally goes, you know, what the heck am I doing here? I was really frankly burning out and now i had the systems i'm a systems guy right so i had the assistant i had the you know i had the team in place but there's really no residual so i said i know i've got it we'll just start holding some of these things and that's what i did and then i was like and then i was like wait a minute before i get too far into this stuff how many houses would i need to cover my living expenses and it was like you know at the time i wanted to have ten thousand dollars in passive income per month and i was like did the math if i can buy and hold a house that generates two hundred dollars uh Per month and, and which was hard to do by the way in almost any oh, market but, but let's say i could i would have needed 50 houses and i was like oh my gosh i just did, did you know did about a dozen a year for three years it would take me at least five years and that's assuming i can buy it, it was i was like man i'm not prepared to do that <laughs> so in early on in 2007 i had started looking into apartment buildings i attended a boot camp and i actually did some uh, marketing and looking for deals in texas for a good number of years and i put all that on hold because of the restaurants that got so busy So I remembered the multifamily and I was like, Hmm, let me, let me dust that off. Let me think about that some more. And the more I looked into it, the more I convinced myself that that was actually a viable strategy. The problems I had at the time was I didn't really have a track record or multifamily and I didn't have any money because it was all deployed in the, in the restaurant. So that was, and that's, that was my my conflict with the the apartment building stuff.
1: Interesting. That's quite a, that's quite a bit of diversity going from, restaurant to, well, from software to restaurants and then to real estate of all things. Cause usually most people, I'm actually impressed you got out of the restaurant business unscathed because most people I know that were in the restaurant business, they're working for somebody else now.
2: (laughs) Well, well, I didn't, I basically lost everything from the IPO. Every, every dollar I had from that, I plowed in. I subsequently lost and I I got within probably three months of losing, you know, losing everything like uh, bankruptcy, loss of house. It was, uh, it was pretty, pretty ugly. So I wouldn't say unscathed, but I'm I'm stronger for it.
1: <laughs> well, but yeah, but look at you now. You've come a long way, and I'm impressed with what you've accomplished thus far. And at some point, you had to get to that first deal. Now, for me, that that took a while. That was a, that was a mm-hmm. challenge, and and I shouldn't say a while, but it was a roadblock. You talk about the law of the first deal. I've heard that you say that on your show more than once. So, can you mention a little bit of what your philosophy is on the law of the first deal?
2: Yeah. So I have observed. in in working with students, interviewing people on the podcast, that there's something very magical about that first deal. I'll tell you what I'm I'm observing, and I I can maybe give them a theory of why it works. But I call it the law of the first deal, and it it says this: uh, whoever, if anyone does a multifamily deal of any size, they will be financially free in three to five years. Now the evidence actually points to two to three years, much less than I'm just saying, just to be a little more conservative. But what happened is. People, here's what happens. People decide that they want to be financially free with real estate. They do some research. They finally, uh, however, they come to the conclusion, decide that multifamily is the way to go. From that moment, when they decide multifamily, they they have rec- rec- they've quit their job in two to three years. And it's because of that first deal. That first deal is the hardest to do, takes the longest. And it's because, well, you don't have a track record. You maybe haven't acquired the skill for, for raising money. You have a, a small comfort zone, right? So that first deal is very difficult to do. But once a person does that first deal, and this, this is true for any size, whether you do a 50-unit or a duplex. I have plenty of examples of people who, uh, who do a duplex first, and then their next deal is a 30-unit, right? right? So the, pro- the progression I'm seeing is that, that they do that first deal, and then the second and third follow in rapid, almost automatic succession. I mean, oftentimes, the second deal is already under contract by the time the person closes on the first and they're progressively larger. Why? They're larger because their comfort zone expands, uh, primarily. They're larger because now they have a, a, a network of brokers feeding them, feeding them deals. They have a pipeline. They've now acquired the skill and the taste for raising money, so what they now can raise, raise more. And the only thing that limits the deal size is, is in their people's minds, their ability to, uh, to, to raise money. And so once they expand that comfort zone, their skill level and their confidence, the deals get bigger and bigger. And typically after that third deal, they will have replaced your their income.
1: So Michael, you're listening, I can detect your passion. I mean, and you're right, because that's exactly how it played out for us. We by the third deal, we were we were done. We didn't have to work anymore and, and that's all fine and dandy. But we for that to happen, you gotta get through that first deal. So what do you think? Why don't more people do this? why are we it seems like we're the only ones preaching some days I go through this? I'm like, is there anybody else listening besides? You know, I tried to tell you people why I'm on a kayak on a Wednesday, but nobody wants to listen.
2: So, yeah, because they think that what you have is unattainable uh, and that you're special and they're not. Um, I mean, usually when I say people, I say, look, you do, you, you know, everybody's sitting in a RIA meeting. Why are they there? They're there because they want financial freedom with real estate. That's why they're there. Right. But, but they're failing at it because for a variety of reasons, but largely because they're focused on single-family house investing. And I say, look, I got the solution for you. And they're like, what is it? Well, it's apartment buildings. They go, right, apartment buildings. Okay, that's very complicated. Uh, where I don't have the experience for that and I don't have the money for that. So I appreciate you telling me that, but that's maybe I'll do that once I have a, a few single family houses under my belt. And that's normally where the conversation stops uh, unless you provide that person with a little bit of a mind shift.
1: Uh, yeah, that's for sure. Because it really, it, for me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it really comes down to, we are what holds us back. I mean, we're, it. it's not anybody else. I mean, I've had brokers tell me, Hey, you don't have the experience to buy the apartment building. Like, I laugh and say, you're going to send me the financials or not. Ah. Yeah. I heard, uh, it was Joe Fairless, I think said, uh, early on, I was on his podcast a while back and he was talking about, um, somebody told him that he didn't have the experience and he came back with. So where in the book does it say how much experience I need? What, what page is that on?
2: Uh, Joe Farrell is a very confident kind of guy.
1: Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I mean, getting started talking about that, it's like, cause this is this, these are valid concerns cause there are yeah. brokers out there and there are sellers that I'm hoping I'm never going to be one of those, but that will judge people based on the fact they don't have any experience. So how would you say we get started? What's it going to take?
2: Yeah. So the experience thing is a, is a real thing, especially in, in people's minds. And I thought, my gosh, if I have three dozen houses under my belt, I surely, I'm, that's going to be a massive track record that people are going to be really impressed with. And what I found was no one cared. You know, the broker was like, well, that's great, Michael, but you know, how many you know, apartment buildings have you done? And I was like, well, none, but I have took three dozen houses. They're like, yeah, you haven't done anything. Have you? Well, no, but right. So number one, that actually didn't help my track record. And once I came to that realization that I, I wasn't perceived as having have a track record, I had a shift and I had to figure out how to overcome that. And the best way I found to overcome that is by basically talking about yourself in the terms of your team, right? So if you don't have something, whatever it is money, experience, whatever it is, then surround yourself with people who do. So it's just a very just a very mind shifting example. If you go into a market and you don't have a track record, if you spend some time finding the biggest baddest property manager in that town that everybody knows, and you align yourself with them, well, guess what? Broker says, well, what kind of deals have you done? And they say, well, you know, I'm working with uh, with Sam over here. They manage 5,000 units in Atlanta. And they go, oh, yeah, Joe's a great guy, great guy. And all of a sudden the conversation, you know, goes on. And right. you've, you've addressed the experience. You, you didn't really answer it in terms of yourself, but you answered in terms of, of the team, right? Um, and so you surround yourself with people who have the kind of experience that you're looking for, right? You can even recruit advisors, right? People who are experienced, multifamily syndicators and you say, Hey, you know, do you mind if I, you know, just run stuff by you every once in a while. And, and, you know, can I include you in in, when I make an offer, uh, you know, can I include you as a member of my advisory board? People say, Oh yeah, I love advisory boards." All of a sudden you have this, this, this offer with you and you know, you're, you have like a one sentence paragraph newbie and then you have, you know, the property manager and then you have your, your board of advisors, you have your SEC attorney and your real estate attorney. And they're like, my gosh, look at this this team, this guy put together. And, and that, that whole thing about experience just, it just goes away, goes away. You know, this is an example where just a little bit of education will open. Hopefully people's minds and going kind to of go, all right, maybe I'm still a little fuzzy on the details, but I can see how it's possible.
1: I think you made a very valid point there that I want to make sure that nobody missed at no time. Did you ever say, and then I wrote them a check to be on my team. Did you? No, no. So you go out and find people that are professionals to be in your team, experienced property manager. I just mentioned SEC attorney, maybe tax professional, things like that. Uh, contractor, what have you, you find these people, somebody to be on the advisory board that costs you how much?
2: Yeah, nothing. Uh, just networking.
1: Okay. So like, for example, I have my SEC attorney is on my Friday, to a Friday video call cashflow guys TV. He's on there almost every Friday. I don't have to pay him for that at all. I mean, they love being on those types of panels and boards. It brings them more business first of all, and it makes us look great. So That's
2: right.
1: perfect point. Use the leverage your team. And then that you, so being a newbie really doesn't matter unless of course, you've got a team of newbies. If you go to law school on graduation day and, and, and say uh, who here wants to be an SEC attorney, okay, you, you're on my team. And then the resume, it was from high school. Then I guess you'd have a problem, but otherwise, you can just simply add these people, put together just a little bit of paperwork, maybe a credibility kit or something like that. I don't know if you use one, but uh, putting that together and then leverage the power of your team I think that's brilliant and and folks, that's what it's all about. see it's not about none of that is manufactured okay that's those are facts because if you if you invest in in Michael's deal, you can bet your bippy that that attorney is going to be handling the paperwork or somebody on his team, so to speak, why wouldn't they? why would he go to some to a family law attorney after he's already got so-and-so on his, on his resume. Why not? You talk about, I have a quick test method that my audience knows very well about, but I always love to learn different ways of analyzing deals because there are no, there's no one way, you know, shoe fits type thing. There's many different ways to analyze a deal. I know you have some quick test methods where you can go through a deal or run through a market. I'm sure you get a lot of deals thrown at you and people know that you're out there and you're, you're, you're doing deals and you're closing. Can you help us go through like a quick, quick test scenario, how we go, no go, what that looks like for Michael.
2: Yeah. So when I first got started in 2007 with multifamily, it took me literally four hours to answer the question, what is the most I should pay for this deal and why? So I can get back and, you know, to the broker with, with feedback, four hours, right? That's, that's a lot. And so as you know, it's a real estate is a numbers game. And so spending four hours to answer that question is a long time. And at the time I didn't have the tools that I have now, nor the technique, uh, but now with this process, I have this down you know, to, to 10 minutes. M- the major mistake I was doing was that I was, I was r- doing way too much work on underwriting or analyzing the deal than I needed to because I didn't really even know if, uh, if, if, the, if the seller would consider a lower, lower price or how flexible they, they were. So I, I was spending all this time researching, coming up with a number which, of course, inevitably was lower than the asking price. They always are. Uh, and you'd never hear from the broker uh, because you missed the mark. So I was wasting a lot of time, and as a result of that, I was making less and less offers, and I was getting more and more frustrated because because of my inability to make offers. And that stops a lot of people in their in their track uh, from from doing that because they feel it's very complicated. And it, it can get complicated, but not in the beginning. In other words, when you're first making your offer, you're not. It, it's a little bit different than single-family house investing, where you might just fax over a, a contract. Uh, you the offer making starts verbally informally via email and typically if you start getting into the the seller strike zone the broker strike zone you're invited to put it in writing with a letter of intent which is a non legally binding you know two-page document that basically summarizes the salient points of the deal Uh, so you wouldn't even throw an loi over the fence unless you're invited to do that so there's a lot of informal what i call feedback and which are all forms of offers right so you know asking price is one million you know i did the numbers you know, based on your uh, vacancy, they look look a little low. You know, normally I like to use 10% vacancy, so I'll adjust that a little bit. You know, your expenses, as you reported to me, man, they're really low. And the rule of thumb normally is 50% of of, of the uh, of income should be expenses. Yours is like 35%. So I adjusted that a little bit. Then I took your cap rate that you put in your marketing package and applied it to the new modified net offering income. And, and really, the, the fair market value, which you're offering is $750,000. Is that something you would consider or probably not? Right, so I've taken their numbers, I've applied some rules of thumb, I've taken their cap rate and their valuation method and I basically said, look, you know, based on your own numbers here, it's actually worth 750, not a million. Is that something that your seller would consider or probably not? And if you never hear back, well, shoot, you obviously missed the mark, they're not very motivated, but you only spend 10 minutes on making them the initial offer. Now, sure, if if they do a counter offer and they say, well, what did you have in mind, put something in writing at that point, well, it's time to sharpen your pencil and you need a good modeling tool. Uh, that I I offer as well, but that's not really necessary uh, upfront, right? Don't waste a lot of time. So uh, it doesn't really become relevant until you're invited to kind of sharpen your pencil. And a lot of people just over engineer, uh, over engineer that, especially in the beginning.
1: So do you find how much information initially do you require upfront to get to that point to where you're going to, I mean, we, we, in our market, just to give you an example, there's this, let's say we're looking at a hundred unit building there are brokers that will just not respond at all or brokers that when they do respond, they don't have any information on it, very little, or it's all yeah. pro forma. It's like, so how do we, and pro forma folks, that that means the fancy, that's a fancy word for guess is what that means. That, that means guess. It, 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 Investopedia has a whole different word, but we'll call it guess. How do you, how forthcoming do you find in your market or the places where you're playing out of the mm-hmm. brokers and the sellers and, and giving you enough data to make that decision?
2: Yeah, so it depends on what phase of the process you're in. If you're in the beginning phase, you're going to make your offer based on simply solely on what they provide you, right? So if in their package you provide a pro forma, well, then, on it, you're going to apply your rule of thumb and your offer to that. With the understanding that you may communicate in email that you're making your offer basically on a pro forma, which in your experience is probably a little more optimistic than reality. Isn't that right, broker? Oh, yeah. I mean, no. No, that's not. That's not. So, <laughs> so, you know, go ahead and make the offer based on that. So, as long as you make offers based on uh, assumptions that you disclose to the other side, and once things are uncovered that are to the contrary, well, that changes the deal. Now, um, so but as the farther you get into a, a deal, um, then the the better the information should be, but oftentimes you're working with incomplete information. So the one of the best ways I found to kind of address that is is, again, this is where your team comes in. If you have a really good property manager, they can help you tremendously. Getting, uh, getting into an offer and also during due diligence, right? So for example, if the, if the broker is saying that the, you know, the rents can be raised a hundred dollars a month if you did these kinds of repairs, well, if you have a good property manager, they should be able to validate or invalidate those assumptions because they know they do rental comps, the good ones do all the time. They can say, oh yeah, that's, that's totally in line or like, no, that's ridiculous. Or they might say, wow, shoot, the rents actually should be a little higher. So you have your property manager validate or invalidate a lot of the numbers that you get from from uh, from the broker. So it's very important to have your, your team in place. Um, and the farther you get into a deal, the better the information uh, becomes. So for example, you may put a, a deal under a contract with pretty good information, but it's certainly not the same as doing due diligence where you can look at the exact financial, the exact leases, the exact everything, right? Um, and so you you have to, you ha- in other words, you have to be comfortable in taking Action with the information that you have and it may be incomplete as you get into a deal so you're knowing that
1: going in so in that example we've got let's say they they tell you that I don't know the income is a hundred thousand the expenses are fifty thousand whatever fifty thousand dollars left over you're gonna base your offer based on those numbers a hundred thousand coming in fifty thousand going back out and you're not gonna require the the whole due diligence packet on the front end of this you're gonna and based on that so that I'm clear and the audience is clear then you're gonna put out a letter of intent that says, based on the information you have provided me, I offer you X in these terms. Okay. Uh, yes, no, or indifferent. And based on that response, then you would go into earnest money and writing an actual contract and the whole nine yards. Is
2: that right. correct? That's right. Because that that's that phase costs some money. So typically, oftentimes a seller will provide the contract. Well, you you have your local real estate attorney kind of review that and that's going to start costing you money. And so you don't want to, you don't want to tell the attorneys to start drafting something when you guys don't have agreement on material terms. And that's how the letter of intent helps, helps you to document what those are.
1: Now in your experience from the time you get to the letter of intent and you get through the due diligence process, um, you go to letter of intent, contract and then due diligence. Correct. When you get into due diligence, how often do you find yourself having to go back and renegotiate all the time? Sometimes,
2: uh, sometimes so, so you, you want to try to minimize that as much as possible because you will get a, a reputation for what's called retrading. Uh, it's, it's, I don't say it's commonplace, but there are people who basically, it's kind of like getting a contractor and going into the low bid and then change ordering, uh, the client to death. Right. So you go in there with a high bid, getting the get the contract and then, and then two three weeks later, you kind of retrade the deal because you've quote magically uncovered things that, you know, weren't there before and you ask for repair credits and a reduction in price and all that, all that stuff, when in fact you really had no intent of closing it at that price. And so you do that and you, you develop a reputation for retrading and it's not, it's not a good reputation to have. However, the purpose of due diligence is to actually uncover things that perhaps you didn't know about. So you know, last year we were on a contract for a 51 units uh, and we were told that it essentially required no repairs. And so we said, okay, maybe a thousand per, per unit just to be on the safe side. Uh, and once we got there, there was there was water problems, there was foundation issues, There the, some of the walls were separating, the vertical walls were separating from the building. And we had a contract there walking the property and, and he you know, gave us a bid, but it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. And so clearly that was not disclosed. Now, we were under contract at this point about, about 10 days and we reviewed all the financials and all the documentation before he we went, flew out and visited the property. And that's an example where... Uh, that's the purpose of due diligence to uncover stuff like that. And at that point, you have two options. You can either just terminate the contract or you can renegotiate the deal. In this case, we said, look, you know, there's some $250,000 of, of problems with this property. We, you know, we're gonna ask you to drop the price by that so we can fix it. And the seller who was in Miami, uh, you know, didn't think that was necessary. And so, uh, mm-hmm. so we just uh, parted ways. And as long as you can clearly document why you're trying to retrade or renegotiate deals? As long as that's easily understood, uh, normally the parties don't have a problem with that. It's just so when someone they feel they feel like you're maybe you're getting cold feet or a change of heart, or you're trying to, you know, it's a negotiation ploy. You want to try to avoid that.
1: So I'm gonna ask you the 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 common question that I get a lot, and I'm I'm curious how what your answer is. Chicken or the egg? I mean, some people say, well. I I can't raise money until I have a deal. And other people say, well, I can't get a deal until I have money. You know, which one, which comes first, the money or the deal, or do you, do you focus on both concurrently? Are you, in other words, are you always raising money?
2: Well, the answer is raising. Yeah, I'm always raising money, but it's easier for you with some people who have a track record and they can show deals. The biggest question is exactly right. You know, um, I don't have a deal on a contract, so how can I go raise money? right? That's true. Or I have a deal on a contract through some miracle and now I don't have the time to raise the money. This is also true as people kind of go, I can't solve this problem and I'm stuck. So I've, uh, I have a solution for this. Tyler, you want to hear it? I do. <laughs> I, call it the, I call it the sample deal package. So the sample deal package is an investor package of a real deal. It's got a real address, it's got number of units, price, it's got photos, it's got financial projections. Everything about the deal is real except for one thing, which is you don't actually have it on a contract. Now, you tell your investors that this, you don't have a contract, but you use it as a conversation piece and you behave as if you do. And so this opens up a conversation because normally conversation goes, well, talk to me when you have a deal and you go, okay, I'll talk to you when I have a deal. Now you have a deal and now you have like 45 days to close and raise money. And it's really tough to get, go from something from zero to writing a $50,000 check. A lot of times you can't do that, right? What you really want, the ideal situation is that you have verbal commitments from your investors who have already asked you questions, uh, voiced their concerns, and are not comfortable with you, your team, and the kind of deal that you're doing. So when they see the actual deal come through, they'll look substantially like the same. They might have a couple of questions, but they're already prepared. They already told you they're going to invest. And so we use a sample deal package as a, as a conversation piece to try to get that verbal commitment from investors long before we put something on a contract.
1: That's a fantastic idea. So I like the fact that you're using a real deal. You may not have that contract under or under contract per se, like you said, but at least you're using a real deal, something tangible If worse comes to worse. they like you go out and touch it, feel it, do whatever, um, see that information. So I, th- I think that's fantastic. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Um, as far as the, along those same lines, it, the, one of the biggest, I believe it's a limiting belief. I'm sure you would agree is I don't have the money to invest in multifamily. I don't, I need to to save up my money. I'm going to flip my way to invest. I, I'm just going to flip for a while. And then when I'm done with that, miraculously, I'm going to have these big piles of money. I'm going to go buy an apartment building. First of all, have you ever seen anybody do that effectively? Ever?
2: No, not really. Not really. And and the thing, the problem with that is that, first of all, it takes a long time to get there. Right. And then let's say you actually do get there, which just, that chance alone is slim, but you do one deal and your money's gone. And now what are you going to do where well, you can wait another seven years to, to save the money. It's just not, it's not very, it's, it's not very practical, right? It's just not.
1: Thank you for saying that a lot of people have come to me lately and said, geez, you know, I'm just going to flip for two years yeah. before the market crashes. I'm going to race the market down. It's like, Oh yeah, you're going to race it. All right. <laughs> it's going to run over you like a freight train, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, you're an educator and I see that. And what what's interesting though, is I want to know more about that. You're, you're, you spend a lot of your time educating people that you're going to do business with, which I think is cool because I do the same thing. So can you touch on that a little bit? What type of programs you have available?
2: Yeah. So uh, my website is themichaelblanc.com, and it's all about apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money because it is such an important part of that. And so I also have a podcast have a YouTube channel. Uh, I've been blogging for the bigger pockets over the last two and a half years. I also have some paid programs. I have some, 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 some analyzer tools, uh, online programs and coaching. I have my first live event in October where we're going to simulate a real deal from start to finish. And so my passion really is helping people become financial free with the real estate specifically by focusing on that first deal.
1: Very nice. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the October event? What's involved with that? Cause I may get on a plane for that one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So I've done this twice before. It's it's basically I have found that experiential experiences um, shift mindset and comfort zone more more than a lot of theoretical stuff. Even watching an online training program. So I've done it before. And it was called I called it buy with Mike. So I had students virtually. I was a seller, and they were the they were the buyers, and we went through this. And we used the 51 unit at the time, where they basically went all the way through from uh, defining the deal. And analyzing it, making a bunch of offers back and forth, get, finally getting the contract ratified, doing due diligence, reviewing all the due diligence documents, I uncovering some of the issues and what those were, uh, uh, and there were some twists and turns in the virtual property tour, and eventually, hopefully, closing it or maybe not. All right. And so, what I found is it was I really shifted their comfort zones. It, it expanded like there, there's one guy's name is Roger. He was really focused on a 10 unit. By the time he was done, he was like, man, that's it. I'm, I'm not looking at anything less than 50 units because of that, because he's gone through that now virtually. So what I wanted to do is I wanted uh, I wanted to do that for a larger audience and uh, and also want to do in person. Uh, I'm, I'm virtual kind of like you are. I kind of like hiding behind my microphone and my camera. <laughs> and people are like, well, how can I meet you in person? I'm like, you can't, okay? That's, that's, that's right. by design. <laughs> and so I and I stopped doing the buy with Mike because it was a lot, a lot of work for me to do that but the, the impact on the students was so big that I filed it away. And I said, like, someday I'm going to figure out how to deliver this in a way that makes more sense. And so I'm going to do that in, in, uh, in October in the Washington, D.C. area.
1: Washington, D.C. outstanding. Is that going to be on your website?
2: Yeah, it's going to be the michaelblanc.com forward slash summit. Uh, there's also a tab for events, and that will get you there as well. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be – I think it's going to make a – big difference in people's minds. And again, I really want to help people do that first deal because I know if they do that, they're two, three years away from, you know, quitting their job or whatever they want to do.
1: Speaking of that. So there's a lot of different, a lot of great points here. A lot of the stuff is I've learned a lot from this episode, number one, but there's a lot to think about and you got to break that out somehow. You need, I'm a big believer in one thing. Those of you that listen to the show for a while know we had the author, Jay Papasan. He was here from the one thing. And today's his birthday, by the way. Uh, Skype told me that. How about that? Kind of creepy. <laughs>
2: That's
1: a whole other story. Um, so, what's the one thing you think at this stage of the game? You listen to this episode. What's the next thing? The one thing that someone should do to become successful in the space?
2: Yeah, just focus on your first deal. It's it's that simple. You can don't focus on your retirement, how long and how many units you have to own. It's it's really completely meaningless and will overwhelm you. So instead, just focus on that on that one deal. What I tell people is that first deal has to be both meaningful and achievable. Meaningful meaning that it's a, a meaningful step towards your goal and achievable something you can do in the next six to 12 months, let's say 12 months to be conservative, right? So in other words, if if you're a high income earner uh, and you're looking to replace $20,000 in income, well, a duplex would not be uh, very meaningful and it would be highly, highly achievable. You can probably pay cash for it tomorrow, right? So so if you're that kind of person, you probably don't want to uh, start with a duplex. On the other hand, I had a, a, a UPS truck driver, who did his first deal, which was a four unit and he had to replace his rat race number was $4,000. So a four unit that he bought with hard money, that was a meaningful deal for him and his situation. And that's also something he could achieve in the, in the first 12 months. So uh, pick a, a unit size that is, that is both meaningful and achievable for, for you. Um, that's, that's kind of number one, and then get really, uh, really t- um, tangible about that. So the sample deal package we talked about, Right. is, is a, it's a tool we use for raising money. But the other thing it does is visualizes your first deal, right? So if you're going to, let's say, I'm going to pick a, a 10 unit, then you create a sample deal package that, and that uh, uh, embodies your, your first deal. That means you've found it, you've analyzed it, you've uh, you crunched it, maybe you made a few call, phone calls, maybe you even went by. So that first deal now becomes so real to you that you can just visualize. And as you know, when you can visualize something, you start believing. And when you start believing something, well, you have no trouble taking action once you do that. And so that's really the power of that, that first deal.
1: That's absolutely correct. Now you, we, we just put out a course called the cashflow blueprint um, through a collaboration with one of our mentors, Larry horrible, but I know you have a blueprint as well. Um, talking about the first 30 days, you want to run through that real quick before we close?
2: Yeah. So it's uh it's kind of a, you know, what do you do? What do you start with first? And I really have a kind of a 12 month blueprint to your, to your first deal. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's what do you kind of do the first week, the second week, the third week, what do I do after that, right? So let me just outline that really quickly. Uh, I kind of have the, the first phase, which is kind of what I call the pre-launch sequence. And in that phase, uh, you basically, in week one, you educate yourself. So you attend an online program, mine or someone else's, you, there's an education component there. And you can you know, go through the entire course, and just kind of drink it from a fire hose. Then in the second week, you're going to clarify your first deal. Kind of like what I talked about uh, earlier. You want to really clarify your first deal. In the third week, you're going to analyze your first five deals. Now, why analyze and why five? Well, analysis is uh, is, the, is the foundation skill that, that's required for everything. It's required, obviously, to improve your language and your skill set. It's required to make offers. Right. It's also required to get up your confidence uh, as well. And so that's why we analyze five deals. And then the fourth week we kind of create your sample deal package. So now in that 30 days, you have everything you need to basically be launched into the world without sounding like a, like a bumbling idiot. That's kind of the purpose of that. And then the next 60 days is all activity focused. So it's not so much outcome focused, it's it's activity focused and you're going to be doing three things. One is you're going to be analyzing deals. You're going to be building your team and you're going to be meeting with, uh, with investors. That's it. Those three. And you have, you know, accountability goals for each of those. And you're not focused really on outcome, just activity. Now I can tell you, if people do that kind of work for 60 days, there actually will be an outcome. You will, in fact, have a team ready to go on the ground. You have a property manager, you have a a mortgage broker. You'll probably have a pipeline of deals, and you'll probably have a pipeline of of investors who either have already committed or about to commit to you uh, funds for that. And then essentially that, over the remaining nine months, you're just building your pipeline and and you're closing your first deal. So it's, it's building up that, first, the knowledge, skill level, and confidence and then the activity, the new discipline. And after that, just a matter of time.
1: And then, as you said earlier, once you get that first deal done, then it's it,
2: it, every,
1: I can't think of one one time where somebody, I haven't helped somebody get a new deal or done a, a, done my first deal in a different market or whatever, and you just get the steamroll and it just it just starts you know, gaining momentum. And then it's like a train running out of control. Now I don't think twice about it. I'm like, oh, look at that. It's orange or purple trim. Let's buy it. Right. <laughs> right. Knock 20 like- off our paint job.
2: It's like, a, it's like a giant domino, right? They're getting that first domino. Imagine a domino that's, you know, that's barely, you can barely budge. You really have to take a, a hard push out of it. Once that domino falls, that next domino, essentially just falls automatically. And that's kind of like what that first deal is. It's that, it's that giant first domino. It's really overwhelming, really hard to do. And once you knock it down, it's literally game over. I mean, you, all you got to do is sit back and let it happen at that point. That's, that's how automatic that second and third deal becomes.
1: That's just it. Yeah. I mean, cause a domino once it's laying on its side is easy to, you can just step right, walk right over it. But when it's standing up on end, it looks insurmountable. So that's fantastic advice. Anything you want to leave the audience with before we sign off
2: today? Yeah. I, I just encourage everyone to kind of look at your goals, uh, financial freedom and really examine the strategy that you're using to, to do that. And then really take a, a serious, hard look at multifamily. I think we talked about a lot of the limiting beliefs around that stuff. And maybe that helped, uh, helped you overcome some of those objections. And I just have found a lot of people reject uh, multifamily investing for the wrong reasons. So I'm hoping this episode kind of, you know, creates some awareness and encourages people to take a serious look at multifamily. Outstanding
1: Michael. Thank you so much for having, for coming on the show today. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to learn more about Michael, you can learn, you can access his contact information on our show notes and also the make, the that will be on in the show notes and available to you. And, Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time. I got a lot out of this episode. I learned something. I know my audience did too. So I really appreciate you taking the time.
2: My pleasure, Tyler. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: All right. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to wrap us up for today. And if, as always, if you have not joined the Facebook community, go to cashflowguys.com forward slash group that will take you directly over to our Facebook community. Why do I have it that way? Well, because Facebook search engines, they change every week and I can't keep up with it. I'm too old and not smart enough for that. So we kept it simple. We got a pretty link, go to cashflowguys.com forward slash group, get you over to our Facebook page. If you have questions, you want to reach out to me directly, As you know, every Friday afternoon, I give a free 30-minute consultation to anybody listening to the show. Go to cashflowguys.com forward slash ask Tyler. Get on my schedule. No obligation. Nothing's for sale. We can talk about whatever you want. The weather, multifamily, single family, rehab, doesn't matter. Maybe I can talk you out of flipping a couple houses. Who knows? But cashflowguys.com forward slash ask Tyler. And until then, we will see you next week.